Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you for your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section in Matthew and show us what you would have us to see. Let your Holy Spirit guide and lead us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So we're going to look at this great profession that is being made and, and examine it a little bit. And we start out that they've come to Caesarea Philippi, which is a very mountainous region, rocky desert, desert region. And he asks, you know, who, who are the people saying that I am? And it's kind of an interesting question. You know, I think he wanted his disciples to be thinking a little bit. And this is so important, you know, how often do we as Christians not think about what we believe? And I've shared with you, I'd like to challenge even the lost world. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Uh, many times I've asked people over my lifetime, because I've worked in the colleges, being in colleges and being in that air environment, and they go, well, I believe we all evolved. You know, I'm going, well, why? Explain to me why you believe it. Well, so-and-so or so-and-so said, I go, well, yeah, but what's the, what's the proof? I try to get them down to think about what it is they believe. And most non-Christians have never, ever looked at what they believe. The sad thing is most Christians don't look at what we believe and analyze, is what I'm believing true? Is, is it biblical? Is it correct? And we see so many things that get said, you know, uh, you hear all these little things, you know, God helps those who help themselves, you know, and they, and they go, I swear that's in the Bible. And, and you go, well, no, it's exactly opposite of what the Bible teaches. God helps those who can't help themselves. And, you know, we go, you know, we look at God, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. And they'll swear that's in the Bible. No, being clean is a very good thing, but it has nothing to do with godliness. Uh, you'll hear people say, money is the root of all evil. And they go, no, the verse says, the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, and we get this whole process of people believing things, and Christians do the same thing all the time. Somehow they know they get saved by faith, and then they feel like they've got to earn their, earn their place with God from that point on. And then they feel all miserable because they're not getting where they want to go. And so we see this Jesus asking the disciples, who are people saying I am? And I love this answer. Is, you know, some say you're John the Baptist. That one just doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And some of them are saying that he's John the Baptist. That one doesn't, that one doesn't make sense to me at all. Uh, you know, some are saying you're Elijah. And Elijah was, is supposed to come back before Jesus uh, returns and Jesus said, "Well, he did come. The spirit of Elijah came in John the Baptist, uh, and there's still people who believe that John the Baptist and/or somebody very so much like him that he is will be in the end times during the tribulation. 
And that's why many people believe that Elijah will be one of the prophets that are at the temple prophesying. And I have no problem with that because uh, he's one that didn't die and I believe the two of them that didn't die are going to be there. So I believe it's Enoch and Elijah. Uh, and I won't give any other reasons other than the fact that neither one of them has died and, and they will end up dying. Uh, but you know, it doesn't really matter. But he says, some of you think, some people are thinking you're Elijah. You know, some are saying you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah, remember, if we've been with us on our, especially Ezekiel class, Jeremiah was preaching during the time that uh, Jerusalem is, is falling and getting ready to go into captivity. And Elijah prophesied during that period of time. So he's saying, you're, you're one of these great prophets, or you might just be one of the other prophets. All of these don't make a whole lot of sense because the Jews aren't supposed to believe in reincarnation. So it's kind of, well, we think we're one of the prophets come back to life. So none of those statements really make a lot of sense. Uh, now, if they said they believe you're operating in the spirit of these guys, that would be one thing, because then you're saying you're a prophet operating under the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But, you know, they're saying you're one of these prophets, come back. And, you know, it's amazing. There are a lot of Christians that actually have this whole idea of maybe there is something in reincarnation. You know, that the, good, the, the big leaders will come back. Moses is going to come back. Uh, Elijah is going to come back. All these guys are going to come back. And so we want to, you know, they're saying this. And then Jesus asked the most important question. Who do you say that I am? At this point, they've been walking with him for close to the four year, into the four years. He's getting ready to go into the last couple months of his life. And he's basically asking him, okay, you've been walking with me. You've been my disciples. Who do you say I am? And we think about this. And we've talked about this. The disciples have had the understanding that he is the Messiah. Okay, the Messiah, the one who's going to come and make Israel the great nation, throw Rome off their back and make them the great nation and all the world's going to be ruled from Jerusalem. This is what they are expecting from Jesus. And this is why from this point on it said that he started talking to them about his death. And in, in this chapter we're going to hear that and they never understand when he's talking about dying, they never really understand it. Because it doesn't make sense to them. The Messiah is coming to deliver them from Rome, set up his kingdom, which is going to be an eternal kingdom, and God is going to rule from Jerusalem over the whole world. This is the disciples' mentality until after Jesus is resurrected and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then they start remembering all the things that he said about the kingdom. And it's not until that point that they start understanding spiritual things. Before that, it's all natural things. They're following him. They're expecting to be the dukes and princes and, and the key people. You know, we laugh about that, but that was really what they were looking to do. The, the, the king is here. He's going to set up the kingdom, and because we're his, we're his key followers, we will be in the key positions in the ruling of this. We'll be the dukes. We'll be the princes. We'll be the, the main rulers because we stood behind him when he had started with nothing. So we got to understand their mentality. This is a question that we think of, well, should be an easy question for them. They've been walking with Jesus for you know, almost three, you know, almost four years now. This should be an easy question. They should know exactly who he is. But they don't. And you see this all through this. They don't ever understand who he is because of their preconceived ideas of who he is. And, you know, this is something we often do as Christians. We get this preconceived idea of who and what God is and how he does things. 
And if he steps outside of the box, we go crazy because it's just not how God's supposed to act. And the one thing I have learned over the years is God is really good. If you try to put God in a box, even a good box, that he's probably even a true box, according to scripture, he steps right out of it just to prove that he's not going to be in a box. Why did Jesus do so many different ways of healing the blind? I think it's because if he did it the same way every time, people would come, here's how you heal the blind. You take a bunch of, bunch of mud, you, you spit in it, and you put it on the guy's eyes, and they'll be healed. Because Jesus did it that way one time. Okay? Another time, he just you know, prayed for the guy. You know, if that was the way he did it with every single person, then the way you heal somebody is you've got to pray for them and believe. I think Jesus purposely did things different every time so that we as humans didn't exalt, here's the way this is done. Because we do that. The Jews took the bronze serpent, and if you remember the bronze serpent, when the serpents were coming in, biting the people in the, in the wilderness, Moses raised up a bronze serpent on a staff, and, it, and if they just looked at it, they'd be healed after they, the serpent bit them. Well, in Hezekiah's day, they destroyed the bronze serpent because they had turned it into an idol. They were worshiping the bronze serpent instead of God, who was the healer, they were worshiping the bronze uh, serpent. And this is man's tendency. Something good happened because of this thing, and therefore we elevate it to a relic status or a sacred status, and we start worshiping it. Uh, and this happens in all different religions, all different things. We see pilgrimages being made to go see this holy site or that holy site. Uh, in the Muslim world, they're mandated, if you're a good Muslim, to go visit the three holy sites and during your lifetime, Mecca, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and I can't remember the third one. Oh, his burial place of, of, uh, of uh, Muhammad. And if you do that, you're a good, good, good uh, Muslim, and those are sacred sites where you worship God at. And if you're there, you're supposed to be closer to God and all this other stuff that they do. So the disciples are being asked a question that we look at and go, well, this should be an easy question. You've been walking with him for four years. He's been telling you that he's the Christ. He's been telling you by miracles that he's the Son of God. You were there when, when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him and the voice from heaven came out and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I well please. And yet, when he asks them, you can almost picture them talking back and forth, well, who is he? We, you know, we, we want to say Messiah, but it, it doesn't make sense. That can't be what he's asking us. And it says, and, and Simon Peter answered and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. All right? You are the Christ, the anointed one. That's what Christ means. It's anointed. That's not really part of his name. It's a title. Okay? Christ is anointed one. He says, you are the anointed one, the son of the living God. All of a sudden, Peter had the right answer. And he's had the most, you know, Peter's an interesting character. When you look at him, he's, he has these moments of an extreme faith. He gets out of the boat, steps on the water. Uh, he's willing to jump out and do things for God. And he turns around just as easily in most cases. He denies Jesus you know, to, to a young girl at the third time. He denies it to a young girl according to the scriptures. He, start, he takes his eyes off Jesus when he's walking on the water and starts sinking. Uh, he keeps putting his foot in his mouth every time he turns around. This is Peter. But you know, he's like most people. You know, when, when the going gets tough, the faith starts sh being shaky. And God is saying, I want your faith to be strong. But he also understands we have to exercise it and fail so many times before it gets strong. And 
So Peter comes out and he goes, I've got the answer. Uh, you know, I know who you are. And then Jesus answered, as blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Blessed, how, how special you are, you know, Simon Barjona, which in case you didn't know, Barjona means son of Jonah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the newer translations have taken it out. Uh, Bar is son, and then you would have the name of the father after that. That's your, that's your last name in the Hebrew culture at that time. So Jesus would have been, been known as Yeshua Bar Yosef, okay, to his people because they considered him the son of Joseph. Uh, so his full name would have been that, that name uh, to the people. But he says, you know, Simon, son of Joseph, said, and he says, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto you. Jesus knew what the disciples were thinking. This flesh and blood, you, if you'd have given me your flesh and blood answer, you would have talked about me being the Messiah and setting up my kingdom and, and getting rid of Rome. He goes, but God has revealed the truth to you. How many times have you had God reveal truth to you as you've been studying, as you've been praying? I love it when I'm studying and praying before God and all of a sudden something just jumps off the page that is just special. Just all of a sudden it comes up off the page and says, wow, this is something I've never considered. The Holy Spirit talking to you. The Holy Spirit leading you when you're getting ready to say something and all of a sudden you say something totally different than what you were planning to say. Uh, when we're out soul winning and all of a sudden we're saying things that we didn't even know or plan to say, but it's, it's touching the person's life who we're talking to because the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding. Many times when I get ready to teach, I'll stand up and what I've been, whatever I plan to teach goes right out the window and, and God changes the message. Sometimes I wonder if I'm just not listening all week long or if God just you know, is testing me to see if I'll be faithful and teach what he wants me to teach. But it's kind of been interesting. Sometimes I'll go, God, why couldn't you have let me study that while I was studying? You know, it's, uh, but are we willing to listen to the Spirit? And here, Peter is given something that comes from the Spirit. Now we're going to get into this next phrase, which the... Catholic Church teaches is talking about Peter, and we're going to show you that God is not talking about Peter in this statement. Okay? And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, the Jews, uh, the, the Catholics say that the statement that, that God is making is that Peter is the rock that he builds his church on. Doesn't make any sense. May, makes no, no, no sense, period. Especially how shifting sand Peter was in his belief system it makes no sense that he would be considered the rock that the church would be built on so let's look at this he says you are Peter now in the Greek this is you are Petros you are a little stone <laughs> okay he's he's at, Jesus is making a pun here in in the Greek because you you are a little stone uh, Peter and upon this rock Petra rock, a large stable rock, I will build my church. What is the rock that he's building his church on? The statement that Peter gave. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not on Peter. 
Peter is making a very bold statement, but it is the statement that Peter has made that is the rock that God is building his church, going to build the church on. Not Peter himself. Peter is a small stone that is shifting, and we see this all over the place. You know, he is a shifting stone. You know, he's right on one place, and he's way off the next place. He's right on another place, and he's way off base the next place. So it is not Peter that the church is built on. It is the rock, the truth that Peter spoke. And so we just want to bring this out, you know, because it is one of those things. He goes, you're a little stone, but on this big stone, <laughs> I'm going to build my church. So that's, that's what you want to look at. And in this very chapter, Peter is going to get rebuked by Jesus, you know, and he's going to call and get behind you, Satan, you know. So, you know, if you want to try to believe that this is Peter, and then in the very same chapter, he's being, you know, get behind me, Satan, and rebuking him, then we've got problems here. So we've got to understand this play, in, especially in Greek. It comes out very clearly. You, you, you little stone, you know, you've said something really, really good, but upon this huge rock, I'm going to build my church. What's that rock? Not Peter, not the little stone, but the truth that he spoke. So, and it says, and the, I, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. And there is no other foundation laid upon which to build the church. If we try to build the church on any other foundation, it's just sifting, shifting sand and it has no stability. And this gets us in trouble as Christians so often because we are built upon Jesus Christ, the word, the truth. We cannot just change what we believe because people don't like it. And this is where we are in this day and age as the world is getting darker and darker around us. We stand out. The church stands out as a bright, shining light. And those who are true Christians stand out as inflexible to the world. Well, what do you mean you're gonna, that you have to be married before, before having sex? What do you mean that fornication is wrong? What do you mean homosexuality is wrong? What do you mean that this is wrong or that's wrong? Well, I'm sorry, that is what God says. Well, you've got to grow up. That's, that's old-fashioned. That's, you know, that's from 6,000 years ago. You don't need to believe that stuff. Why? Because they have no rock to build their life on, so they cannot understand that we have a rock that our thinking and our life is built upon, and we're not just free to go out and break up the rock and just decide it doesn't mean anything if we're going to be his followers. And it's going to make us where people don't like us. Because they're going to look at us and say, well, how can you believe that stuff? You know, you're just so old-fashioned. Uh, you're so intolerant is the new, the new word out there. Uh, tolerance used to mean that we, you know, Christians used to be the most tolerant people. We believed you had the right to be wrong. Okay? You, you had the right to be wrong. If you want to be wrong, that's fine by me. You can be wrong. Tolerance now means that you have to say that what somebody else believes, even if it's exactly opposite of what you believe, is equally as important as what you believe and equally true. That's what tolerance means in this day and age. So for us, those of us that are older, when we talk to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids, and they start talking about tolerance being a great thing, we're thinking tolerance is a great thing. They're thinking if somebody gives you something diametrically opposed, you have to agree that it's just as valid as yours is, and that's what they believe tolerance is. The new word reason for tolerance is not good. We as Christians are, have become, have moved from the most tolerant people to the most intolerant people. 
because we say God is right and everybody else is wrong, which makes us totally intolerant in the eyes of the world. And the epitome of mistake that you can make in the world's point of view is to be intolerant. And it used to be fun when I was going back to school in the 80s and people, and I'd talk to people and they'd go, well, you're just so intolerant. And I'd go, yes, I am. Thank you. And the look of shock on their face because they had just given me the worst insult that they could possibly think of, you're intolerant. You just won't believe that other people's views are equal to yours. And I agreed that I was intolerant, just shocked them because that's supposed to be, you know, if you're called intolerant to, by the world, you're supposed to just fall to pieces and, and try to bend your way to what they, what they believe. And say, no, you're okay. You're, you, what you believe is okay. No, your belief is still sin. I believe you had the right to, to your belief. That's between you and God, but it's still sin, and God calls it sin, and he's going to judge you for it. And so we've gone from these idea of being very tolerant by the old definition to totally intolerant. And you know, it's fun when you take something and somebody attacks you for it and you just accept their attack. Yeah, uh, because, you know, well, you are just so politically incorrect. I sure am. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And they're looking at you like, I just insulted you and you're smiling about it. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I believe in God's economy. I believe what God teaches is true. And if that makes me intolerant, if that makes me politically incorrect, so be it. I will stand for, with God and, and take my lumps from the world if that's what it takes. Because God is true and every man is a liar. And when they stand before God, they'll find that God is true, even though they wanted to believe what the world teaches. And they'll find out that God is true in the end. Hopefully they find out before they face him at the white throne judgment. But at some point, they're going to realize that God is true and what they believed was wrong. Whether they become a Christian and understand it and get saved and understand, start thinking with God, or they stand before him at the white throne judgment, they will find out that God is true. Our job is to not bend to that. Yeah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a statement that the disciples lived by and they went to their death by. They saw Jesus resurrected. And they died for that truth. This is the amazing thing. All the apostles died a violent death except for John. And for John, it wasn't from lack of trying. They, they tried to poison him. That didn't work. They tried boiling him in oil. That didn't work. They sent him to Patmos, hoping that the crazy people on the Isle of Patmos would kill him. Or he'd go insane, one or the other. That didn't work, so they finally released him and let him die of old age. But he's the only one that didn't die a cruel, agonizing death. And so many other Christians were martyred for Christ. Why? Because they understood that Jesus rose from the dead and was God. This is why we need to be able to fully accept and understand he is Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead, he has a standard of living for us, and he expects us to live it. Now, we know that we can't completely live that standard, but we should be getting closer and closer to that standard with every progressing day. Not because it makes us better with God, not because it makes us more acceptable to God, just because it builds our testimony and it's who God makes us. He changes us. And we become more like him. And we need to be, at, before it happens, deciding, I am going to follow God. Because when you are facing the choice of obeying God or, and following him or rejecting him, that is not the time to be trying to decide whether I'm going to reject or obey God, you know, accept 
accept God or reject him. That is not the time. If you haven't made your decision, God, I want to be able to follow you no matter what, you're not going to make the right decision when you're facing death, when you're facing prison, when you're facing the trial. I can tell you, I've known people who will turn away from God to be politically correct to keep a job. Just to keep a job. And in one sense, it's much easier to give up your life than to give up your job or, or your, your, uh, uh, test, your, your reputation. Because if you give up a job or reputation, you've got to live with that decision, which is trusting in God. Which should be easy for us, but most people can't trust God. And it's an amazing thing to me how many people just will not trust God. God says, do something or be, be this way. And they're going, well, God, uh, I don't know if I can do that. God, I, I've got a good job here. I can't, I can't just pick up and move someplace else and make less money or not even know what money I'm going to make. God, uh, this is a really good job. If I lose this, I'll have to wait tables or something. You know, you know I don't know about this, God. And God's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And unfortunately, a large majority of the people don't trust God when it comes down to something that looks like it's going to hurt them. A job is an important thing. You need money to live. I mean, we're not saying that a job is not important. But who is more important? Is it God or the job? God will meet all of our needs if, if we're where he wants. Now, if he tells you to take a job and you don't take the job, you're going to go broke. Because he's going to say, I gave you the job and you didn't want it. Now, go figure out how you're going to do, get by on your own. Um, you know, I want the best job in out there that may not be the right place for me. But God is what needs to be followed. And we need to be able to say, God, I want to follow you. I'm going to hold my integrity. God, this company wants me to lie and, and cheat people. I can't do that. I'm going to walk in integrity. And if I lose my job, God, it's for you that I've lost my job. Most people won't do that. They'll go, well, yeah, God will understand if I just kind of twist this a little bit. When we watch the movie, God's Not Dead, you know, the, the professor told the young man who was saying, I can't sign the statement that God's dead. And the professor goes, well, just sign it and you can go back to your dorm room, fall on your knees and pray to your, your make-believe deity and, and confess and he'll forgive you. That's the way the world looks at us. Well, you could just do wrong and confess your sin. God will understand that you had to do what you had to do to get by. Any Christian movie brings out this whole idea that there's times when it costs to do the right thing. And it's very important. Are we ready to, do, to pay the cost? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in the middle of this big field of people in front of this huge idol. Three young men standing up when everybody's on their face worshiping this idol. They could have very easily said, well, we can bow down, pray to our God, and everybody will think we're praying to the idol. But they're going, no, we're not going to make it look like we have compromised. And they get called in before Nebuchadnezzar and chewed out, you know, hey, I've trusted you. You guys are key, key advisors, and you're not bowing down to this. I'm going to give you a second chance and all this other stuff. And gets thrown into the fiery furnace, totally expecting to die. And they expected to die when they got thrown in the fiery furnace. But God delivered them, which is a great testimony. Otherwise, we'd have probably never heard the story. <laughs> we'd have heard the story about three guys not bowing and getting killed. And we'd only hear it in, in traditions, not in... But, you know, we look at this. What are we willing to do to stand on the rock? What are we willing to let go? 
And you know, whatever we give up is really not that big a deal, especially when you look at it in light of eternity. Five trillion years from now, we're going to say, I stood for God and it was a wonderful experience because this is the reward he gave me. It may be painful during the period of time of doing it. It may be painful having to live by faith as you lose your job. But God will still meet your needs. It's a good, good place to be when he's meeting your needs. It's really a good place to find out what do you need and what don't you need. You realize you don't need the cell phone and the cable TV and this, that, and the other thing. You realize you don't need so much of what, what you think you need when you had the money. And God says, what are you cutting out? What are you cutting out? And I've heard real, I've heard the excuses, believe me, I've heard it from people all the time. Well, I just can't get rid of my cell phone. I need my cell phone. If I just had my landline at home, uh, I won't, you know, people won't be able to get hold of me when I'm not home. That's what you get an answering machine for. That's what they give you, you know, uh, mailboxes, and, you know, uh, voicemails for. We did for many years. You can survive without a phone completely if you have to. Not, not real easy, not real easy to do that, especially if you're looking for work or wanting work. Uh, but you can do it. You've got message people you can use for messages. Uh, you know, I don't need the brand new car that costs more to insure. I can get an older car that costs less to insure as long as it runs. You know, I can do all these things. I don't need cable TV. Don't need TV at all if it really came down to it. Uh, you know, but we look at this. What is it that is so high up that we just can't do without it if God cuts back our lifestyle? What am I content with? Now, I'm saying that some of these things are not, are bad, not necessarily. But when you're losing your income because you're standing for God, then you're going to have to make some cutbacks. When we, when I lost my income, when I, you know, when I first started here, we made lots of cutbacks. We, we dropped the cell phones, we dropped the, the, the satellite, we dropped you know, the cable, we dropped all these different things. We cut back on the insurance. You know, we, we did a lot of things to say, okay, God, we've cut back as far as we can, God. You know, we've got the budget within a certain amount. God, you need to supply the rest of this amount because we can't, we can't do it. Uh, we can't cut back any further without selling the house and that would cost us more money because we to sell the house, we'd have paid more. We paid more in rent than we paid for the mortgage, so that really wasn't an option. So we said, "God, you, we've, we've cut back. We now are dependent upon you to bring the bills, to fill the bills." And He filled the bills. How much are we willing to trust God in every aspect of our life? How much is our reputation worth? Now, if you're just being bad and losing your reputation, then that's not a good thing. But when you're following God and you lose your reputation because you won't compromise his standards, that's a good thing to be, willing, be ready to lose your reputation over. To have the world look at you and say, hey, you know, you're awfully, you're awfully old-fashioned, you're believing in this, old, this God that, you know, and all this other stuff that they'll tell us, and that's when you go, yes, that's true. I'm going to stand for God. You may call it old-fashioned, you may call it out of, out of sync with the world, and it is, I, but I'm going to stand with God. And here Peter is saying, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, that is the truth. That is the, that is the testimony that my church will be built on. My title. And then he goes, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in, on heaven, in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A lot of people have a hard time with this statement. 
But this is a common statement for Jewish teachers. The Jewish teachers had this idea that it was, if you were speaking for God, that whatever you allowed on earth was allowed by God, and whatever you didn't allow on earth was allowed by, not allowed by God. The disciples believed this too, because when they had the, the Council of Jerusalem in, chapter, in, in, in Acts, and the Gentiles are becoming believers, they, tried, they have to figure something out. They have to figure out, what do we do with all these Gentiles that are becoming Christians? All right? And you've got to remember, when the church first started, it was Jewish. All right? It was called the Way. And it was a Jewish sect, as far as the Romans were considered. It was Jewish. And the Jews didn't really consider it Jewish, but the rest of the world considered it Jewish. And this put them under the umbrella of Judaism, which protected it protected the founding of the church and made it a protective thing because the Jews had made agreements with Rome and they were able to practice their religion and in most places did not. So it was put underneath their umbrella. So we come along and all of a sudden Jew, uh, Gentiles are getting saved. Peter goes to Cornelius, Cornelius and his house get saved, Paul goes everywhere preaching to Gentiles. Philip goes out and preaches to Gentiles, all because God said to do it, and all of a sudden they're going, okay, we got all these Gentiles becoming Christians, what do we make them do? They're not Jews. And they have to sit down and figure, do we make them become Jews? Okay, that's, that's the first option. We're, we're Jewish, the Christian church is Jewish, then we should make them become Jews. And they go, well, no, that's not what God said. When he told Peter, he, he said, don't call what I have called clean unclean. Because God didn't say that they had to become Jews. Uh, he didn't tell Peter they had to become Jews. He didn't tell Paul they had to become Jews. So they ended up coming up with a couple of key verses. And if you read in, in uh, Acts on the Jerusalem thing, they go, all we're going to ask you to do is abstain from blood, uh, uh, meat offered to idols, and from blood. The only two Jewish laws they put on them. <laughs> and they're going, other than that, we're going to let you guys, you're getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're becoming Christians, we're just going to leave you alone. This is this verse being practiced. Whatever you loosen shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind shall be bound in heaven. They're going, okay, you don't have to become full Jews. Because they could have just as easily said you had to proselyte. You had to go be circumcised and be baptized into Judaism and, you'll, and you can be a follower of the way and be a, be a Christian by becoming a Jew. But that was not what they were being taught. That's not what Peter was teaching. It's not what Paul was teaching. And so the rest of the disciples decided, okay, we're going to agree with them and we're going to loose, loose this up. To understand the way the Jews understand a lot of the New Testament is a great game. Okay, because there's things in here that you, we don't understand because we don't understand the Jewish roots of what's said. So we don't, like this statement here. We look at this as a Gentile and say, boy, that's a really weird thing. What kind of power am I being given? But when you understand that the rabbis understood this, that you're teaching God's word and you say this is what's bound and this is what's loosed, to them it was a, it's been used all the time. This was a common phrase to them that they had no problem with. Well, it's basically saying that a teacher will teach you what you're to hold on to and what you're not to hold on according to the word of God. And if it's been taught and it's taught correctly, it'll be what's true in heaven. And, and if it's not true, then it will be untrue in heaven. 
it's not an absolute blanket because you've got different teachers teaching different things. And even in the Jewish day, you had this problem. You had one set of rabbis that taught men that they could divorce their wife for any reason. She burnt dinner, you, you divorce her. Uh, she let she let herself she let herself go. You you would divorce her. You you know she's not as pretty as she was. Uh, she she's not as pretty as she was 20 years ago. You could divorce her. Okay. Then you had another group of of rabbis that were teaching. No, the only grounds for divorce is what God said, and that is for adultery. Okay. So you had two schools of thought. Both of them would have hold on to this verse. Say, what we bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth is loose in heaven. One is wrong. <laughs> okay, the one teaching you you can divorce for any reason under the sun. This phrase is a cliche to them. It's it's not necessarily a truth or anything. It is just a cliche. This is what they what they did. Most of the stories, the parables that Jesus told, were stories that the Jews understood, but he changed he changed them. The the story of the parable son. Uh, the prodigal son, excuse me. That was a story that the Jews understood real well. The young son comes, he's upset, he wants his money, he goes and blows it. You know, finally after having lost everything, he decides to come back to the father and the father has mercy on him and makes him a slave. Jesus changed the end of the story to something that they didn't understand. Number one, the father is watching for the son and runs to the father, uh, son, which is something no Jewish man, father would do. He would never run to a son, especially the disobedient son. And he would never forgive him and make him a son again. So when Jesus told the story, it's like, yeah, we know this story. Yes, yes. What? <laughs> that would be like having Aesop's uh, fables taught to you and then change the, change the moral to something totally different. Okay? Jesus did this frequently with the people. When Paul talks about we are the tabernacle of God, okay, we think of it as, okay, there's this tent out there and they worshiped in the tent. It had the, the holy stuff in it. Okay. You know, we kind of understand it's special. Paul is seeing it from a totally different perspective. He's seeing that as you walk in through the, the places of judgment and mercy to the sacrifice, and then you walk into the, the actual tent to the, of the uh, tabernacle, and you start walking through the layers of, of the blood that being represented in the red cloth and the white cloth representing our, our uh, purity after the blood and the blackness that is being covered by the blood down to, you know and he's saying he's seeing the whole picture of the gospel as we walk into the the holy place he sees the the picture of prayer and offerings and everything you know unless you've studied these things you don't see what paul says when he's talking about we're the tabernacle of god and so we need to understand first yes we understand this the by the new testament and i recommend all new christians start in the new testament but if you truly want to understand what the New Testament is talking about, you've got to start understanding the Old Testament to really understand what these Jews were saying when they said something. Because otherwise you don't fully understand what they're saying because there is Jews that are writing the book, trained by Jews, <laughs> and then Jesus took them under his wing. So we need to understand when they say something, they mean something, and we need to understand what they mean. And uh, so here we have, he says, what I'm going to give you power. You are going to be teachers, is what he's saying, and you're going to be able to bind things and loose things. And he's going. It needs to be within the Word of God. And we're going to see this throughout the Scriptures. Paul binds and loose things all the time. Well, you're binding what God teaches and what's true. And like I say, the picture of the rabbi is teaching opposite views of divorce. 
Both would have said we're, we're binding things and loosing things. One's doing it completely wrong, but his disciples, their disciples were following their way of thinking. Wrong, incorrect, bad doctrine, not God's word, but they were being, they were following what their rabbi or rabbis taught as opposed to the truth of God. So when you're having things that are bound and loosed, you really want it to be within the truth of God and say, this is what God says. This is what God teaches. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to bind it. I'm going to, I'm going to bind the fact that I'm going to honor God in all that I do, even if it cost me everything. I'm going to bind that truth to my heart and live it out. Okay? Even if it cost me, because God has said it's going to be the blessing by doing so. I'm going to hold on to the fact that no matter what happens in my life, God is going to work it for good. The truth, I'm going to bind that. I'm going to bind it tight to my life and it's going to be bound in heaven that God is going to do good things. He's going to be doing, uh, honoring his word. Uh, I'm going to loose and let go of things and it will be let loose in heaven. So that's what this is all about. It's not you all of a sudden have the supernatural power to speak things into existence. And this is what's taught in many of the name it and claim it. You know, God, I bind this thing in Jesus' name and it won't be a power anymore. God, I command this blessing upon myself or this person because you said if I loose it, it's going to be... That's not what this verse teaches. Yeah, that is not what this verse teaches. So we have two different denominations being attacked here, or denominational thoughts. We have the Catholicism who says Peter was the rock that the church was built on. And here we have, no, it's not name and claim it that's being being demolished. So we look at this and say, God is going to build his church and he's given us power. Given us power that we're going to, if we're in the word of God, that we will be able to bind and loose things. And, and it is, there is power behind it. Believe me, there's power behind it. When I talk about saying that I really truly believe that all things work together for good, there is so much power in that understanding and that belief that no matter what you go through, you go, God, you're going to work good out of this. I know that you're going to work good out of it. I'm going to trust it. I don't understand. I don't know why. I don't know how you're going to do it. But I trust. I bind my entire being, my spirit, my, my emotions, my contentment on that truth. I do not look for the good that is going to come out of it because sometimes I can't. You will drive yourself crazy sometimes. The example I've used when I went, was in six months in pain on my gout, I could have driven myself crazy looking for the good that was going to come out of that. Right. I would have driven myself crazy if I'm going, okay, God, I don't, you know, what, what is good? What is good about this? Now, he did show me a year later what it is, but I, I, I think he showed me only so that I could share that, so that I could tell people, you may never know what was good about what God put you through this side of heaven. Because he may never show you who was touched by what you went through. You may never see how much you were changed just by being dedicated to God and going through it. Until you get to heaven and he says, this is what happened. Oftentimes you don't see what the good is until years later. Sometimes as much as a decade or two when all of a sudden you have empathy for somebody who's going through a hard time because it's similar to something you went through 15, 20 years earlier. And it just makes you say, okay, yeah, I can understand why you're having trouble with that, with that area. I've, I've had trouble with something similar. And now I can pray for you and I can say, hold on to God and it will, 
he will work it out for good. This is the whole purpose of a lot of what we go through. It's not necessarily our good and an immediate good. It is for something future. This is the, the statement that I have given before that God, God put up there, that put in front of me. God's perfect will is what we would choose if we knew everything. If I knew everything that was coming down the pike, I would choose exactly what God wants me to choose because he wants what's best for me. And if I understood what was going to happen 50 years from now and how this event that I'm going through today affects 50 years down the road, I would choose to go through this event no matter how hard it is because I know the benefit later on. But as humans, we look at this event that's hard to get through and we go, God, there's no way this is going to be for good and it's painful. You know, why are you letting me go through so much pain and I just don't see how it can be any good? And God's going to say, I promise you it's for good. Just endure. Just grab hold of the truth. Our faith and trust in God is what's most important. God, I know that you're in charge. God, I know that you're going to work things for, for good because you've promised it. No matter what I'm going through. My friend who went through breast cancer, you know, there's nothing good about going through that and all the tests you have to go through and the chemotherapy. But he's going, God, I don't know what it's going to do, but he used it to witness to people. And I've shared with you, he, had, he used a captive audience. He, they went through chemotherapy and they were there for an hour to three hours. And he'd witness and talk to them about God for the time that he was doing his three-hour treatment. He'd have one, two, or three people for the time he was in there, and he'd just witnessed everybody, witnessed all the nurses and doctors and, and all the other people. He just said, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to use it. You know, the disciples keep getting sent into prison. They go, God, thank you. And I love their attitude. Thank you that I'm worthy of suffering for you. How many of us as Christians in America would say that? God, thank you that I was worthy of suffering for you. We don't want to suffer and we don't look at it correctly when we do. We go, God, uh, this is not right. How, how come I'm suffering? And God is saying, I've got a purpose in it. Look how many people came to Christ because the apostles were beat, put into prison, and went right back out to, pre to preach the next day or two after they got out of prison. Paul and, Paul and Barnabas in, Phil in the Philippian jail singing hymns to God in the middle of the night after they had been beat and scourged in a stinking, unhealthy, unsanitary prison, and they're singing praises to God in the middle of the night, waking up all the other prisoners. Being the human condition would say, okay, uh, we'll just get out of jail, you know, we'll just cool it, cool it for a couple of days. And start Let the heat die down before I go back out. But you know, that's not the way that God wants it. He says, are you willing to stand for me? What are you willing to give up for me? And most of the time, we take the human way out. Well, you know, God, I just got beat. Uh, uh, these the sores are still really, the scars are not even closed yet. Uh, let me rest for about a week or two. We'll let the, we'll let the scars and the whip, whip uh, heal up a little bit, and then the, the heat will go down, and I can go witness again and take another, take another beating for you. But that wasn't what they did. God, thank you. I'm worthy of suffering, and give me another opportunity to get out there and suffer some more. And yet, in, our, in most Christian churches, we can't even get people to go out and do street evangelism. We can't get people to knock on doors. We can't get people to share the gospel while they're going in around their day-to-day -day business because they might look like they're a little silly or fanatical. 
God, I just can't look, you know, God, you can't really want me to look like a, a Jesus freak, would you? You know, uh, they might think I'm strange. Well, praise God if they think I'm strange. I am strange. I believe in God. I am strange as far as the world is concerned. I believe that God is true and that his word is true. That makes me strange as far as the world's concerned. Makes me normal as far as I'm concerned, and they're strange. But are we, what are we willing to give up? What, where would we stop and say, I don't believe this anymore. I'm going to deny Jesus. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. And if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. Now, if you're saved, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but you're going to lose a lot of reward for being denied before the Father. And you're going to go through a lot of hardships that you didn't need to go through while God's trying to get your attention. When you start walking with God, you go through hardship, but you stay content because you know you're doing what God wants you to do because you've got the word saying, do it. You think about Moses. Moses did not want to lead the children of Israel, especially after the first time. He tried to lead them in his own strength, and he murdered a man and got kicked out of Egypt as as a murderer. And all of a sudden, God calls him back and goes, well, I don't want to go back there. I'm a wanted man. Then he, then he starts leading them, and he kept telling God, there are you know, so many places, I love it, and he's, especially Exodus. God, uh, you keep these people. They're, they're a miserable, stiff-necked group of people, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And you know, God had just as much fun with Moses, saying, uh, Moses, they're your people. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Now, you read it, you, if you read it and you start seeing that, it's a kind of a comical comical place. Moses is telling God he doesn't want anything to do with him, and God, when God is saying, I'm ready to destroy him, you know, Moses says, no, keep them, they're worth everything. And when Moses is complaining, God says, no, we're going to show them mercy. But they, there's just like this game going on between Moses and God. God's saying, Moses, they're your people. I don't want anything to do with these stiff-necked people who don't accept anything I'm giving. And Moses, being in the right place, would say, no, we need to keep them. You know, your reputation would be, be heard if you kill them out here. They'd be saying that you could get them out of Egypt, but you couldn't couldn't deliver them into the land and you know but we see this whole interplay where Moses had a very hard life you look at Jeremiah I love Jeremiah he's young and he's prophesying every time he prophesies he gets thrown into a dungeon or into a cistern or into a pit at one point he goes God I'm I'm not speaking for you anymore because I keep getting in trouble when I do and then the very next sentence says his word burned in my mouth I couldn't help but speak it have you ever been to the place where God's word burns in your mouth, burns in your heart? You just have to say something about God. Maybe not all the time, but I hope that you've had some experience where it just, you can't do anything but. And if you didn't, you just feel like you're going to explode, or maybe you did feel like you were going to you know, explode if you didn't do it. Well, the problem that ends up happening for Christians is if you backslide as a Christian, you know you're not doing what God wants you to do, and you never feel comfortable doing what you thought you were going to feel comfortable doing in your backslidden condition because you're under conviction by the Holy Spirit because you know you're not where you're supposed to be, and the world doesn't accept you because they know that you're a Christian and you've just spoken God's words or whatever, and, and you, you no longer belong and you're not where you belong, and it's really hard. So you don't fit in either world when you're, when you're not following God. It's much better, follow God, don't fit in with the world, and be content because God is doing what you're doing what God has asked you to do and speak when he's asked you to speak be silent when he asks you to be silent uh, walk in walk in his truth walk in the way he wants you to do things well if you're in the middle you're in the wrong place 
uh, you're not fitting in either world. That's lukewarm. Lukewarm. Uh, because when you backslide, you're never going all the way to cold because you're, if you're his child, you're under conviction. So you're sinning, you think you're doing the things, especially when you go back to things you used to do before you were saved, and you thought you were happy doing them before you were saved, and you think, well, I'm, I'm just going to turn away from God. Peter, when he denied Jesus, said, I'm going fishing. You know, I used to enjoy fishing. I'm going to go back to fishing because I know how to fish, and it made me happy. But when he went fishing, I can tell you that even though it doesn't tell us this, he was not happy fishing. Because that's not what he was supposed to be doing, and he knew that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. And when Jesus came and stood on the, on the, on the waterfront with the fish, he goes, it's Jesus. And this amazing thing is, he's so under conviction, he doesn't think he's ever going to be able to have a relationship with Jesus again. But what does he do? He jumps right into the water and swims to Jesus. This is the amazing thing about Peter. Even though... He did some very crazy things in his lifetime. He knew ultimately where to go to and where to turn. He doesn't believe that anything is going to be the same between him and Jesus, yet he gets in the water and, and, and swims to Jesus. Because I believe he wanted it. He wanted the restoration. I don't think he believed that it would happen, but he was so hoping that God would have mercy on him and restore the fellowship because he was not happy. He was under conviction for what he had done, Going back to fishing didn't satisfy him. And it was, I'm going to go back to Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, he'll forgive me. And that's when he goes through the whole, you know, Jesus, uh, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And we're not going to go into that right now, but it's, it's comical when you read it in Greek. It, it's silly when you read it in English. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know, uh, really silly in English. But in Greek... Peter never answers Jesus' question. Okay? He answers it differently than Jesus answered. He, Jesus goes, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally no matter what? And Peter goes, I love you like a brother. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you, do you love me unconditionally? Agape love. And he says, I love you as a brother. I phileo you. The last time when Peter breaks down, Jesus came down to his level and he says, Peter... Do you truly even love me as a brother? Do you truly phileo me? And that's when Peter breaks down and says, Lord, you know all things. He didn't even answer the question at that point because Jesus had come down to his level. And it's an amazing story when you understand it from <laughs> other than English. Because <laughs> English seems silly. You know, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? You know, it's a kind of a strange story in English. But again, in Greek, the same thing, just this section here. You know, hey, little, you know, little rock, you've, you've been given a great blessing. I'm going to build my, my church on this large stone, <laughs> this truth that you spoke. Uh, sometimes it's important to be able to go in further than just what we read in the English. Because uh, English is not the greatest language in the world for the Bible to be written in. Which is why God let it be written in Hebrew and Greek, because they're very strong languages that bring out very strong points. And so we look at this, and he says, and then he ends this, this, this uh, section with, then charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. This is what he keeps telling people. Don't tell people who I am. Because it wasn't time. It's not time. 
It's not time. It's a spiritual thing. It's not, it's not the proper time for him to be, anoint, uh, be anointed as king. And we see this when he, when he comes into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, he's declaring that he is Messiah, that he is the king that they're looking for. And what do they try to do to him at that moment? They're ready to make him king. Okay? They don't understand there's something else coming, that he is the Christ, the anointed one. The, he is going to suffer for their sins and sometime in the future come back as Messiah. So it's not time. This is a, when he comes back and announces that he's Messiah, it is a fulfillment of the 69th week of Daniel when the Messiah rides into Jerusalem declaring himself to be king. All right? And it goes back into uh, Daniel, which we've studied it very completely when we did the Daniel study. Uh, we spent a couple weeks on the 70 weeks of Daniel and explaining how all of this was fulfilled and that he was declaring he was king. And it was the first 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And the 70th week is still to come at the tribulation period when the church is taken out and, and God starts dealing with his people again. And at the end of that time, he will come as the Messiah to, to rule over the world. So all of this comes and it's not his time yet to be declared to be the Christ. Okay? And that's why all these times with the demons, every time the demons say, we know who you are, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he says, be quiet. You know, he tells the demons over and over, be quiet. They knew him. They, they've seen him from the beginning. They know that he's the creator. They, they know who he is, and he keeps telling them, silent, it's not time. He kept telling people, don't keep telling people who I am because it's not time for me to be known as the king. It's not the right time yet. It's not the 69 weeks is not fully completed. Don't tell people yet that I'm the Messiah because it's not the right time. And here he's doing the same thing. Don't share it. Now, after he's resurrected, everything changes because what's he telling them? He says, go. Go and tell everybody the good news about the Christ. And we see a total shift. And that's the, the first big shift of Jesus is when he changes from the meek, lowly lamb that's crucified for our sins to starting to show his power. And the ultimate show of his power is in Revelation 7 when there's a moment in a thir a silence in heaven and Jesus changes from the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to the lion of Judah that's going to rule the world in justice and righteousness. And from that point on, you see a different Jesus. Still loves people, still cares, but he is a God, he is God of justice, God of strength. He's not the meek, lowly sheep being led to slaughter. He is the lion, the ruler of the world, and it's a big change. And that's why there's that pregnant pause in heaven as all of eternity starts to shift into the lamb becoming the lion. The lamb, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world becomes the lion that's going to rule the world. And when they stand before Jesus at the white throne judgment, there is no meek, soft lamb. It's, you denied me, you're headed to hell. You're going to get what you asked for, you're headed to hell. The big change. And we've got to understand, Jesus is both. Just as God is both merciful and loving, and kind. He is also righteous, holy, and just. 
The only reason he can even look at us is because he knows what the Son has done and paid the sin for us. And he can see us through the blood of Jesus Christ and say, okay, I'm accepting you because of the Son's blood. Because he died for you and you've accepted it, you're my child. And we can have fellowship. Same way it was all the way back at the Garden of Eden. The very first sacrifice ever was when God slayed the animals to create coats for Adam and Eve. So we wonder why sacrifices are in every religion out there. It's because God established it long before the, the flood, long before the law. He slew the first animals, shed blood, showing them that it took blood to cover their sin and then covered them with a skin. You know, so the first sacrifice was made by God for man. Second sacrifice is recorded is Cain and Abel, which we know that must have had many other sacrifices between the first and that one. Otherwise, Cain and Abel wouldn't have known right and wrong on the giving of the offerings. And Cain tried to bring the offering of his own righteousness. God, I want to give you what I've worked real hard for. I want my righteous works to stand on the, on the altar. I'm giving you my fruits and vegetables. And God's saying, no, that's not the offering I asked for. I asked for blood. And he didn't give him the right sacrifice and got angry with God and then slew his brother. Pretty sad, sad picture. He's mad at God and he kills his brother. Yeah. But isn't that what happens so often in this world? We get, we get mad at God and do something against somebody. Or we get mad at somebody we love and we hurt somebody else. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that is the way we think in the flesh. God, I'm really mad at you, and I'm going to hurt this person over here because I'm mad at you. And, and I can picture God just shaking his head like, okay, uh, yeah, that's my child you just hurt, so yeah, you did hurt me, but, you know, why? And yet that's the way the world have, works all the time. You know, get mad at one person and hurt somebody else. And here we see, we need to follow God. We need to stand for God. We need to make those decisions to follow God. And we need to make them early. God, how far am I going to get? How close to this sin am I going to get? You know, and the right answer is, God, help me stay far away from this sin. Too many Christians are trying to go, God, how close to this edge can I go before I fall over the edge? God, I, you know, how much, how much uh, you know, untruth can I go before I've actually lied? God, how much petting and kissing and hugging and everything can I get to before I've crossed the line into a, to fornication and adultery? And our teens are going through this right now because they're struggling with this whole thing. You know, can I hug? Can I kiss? Can, I, can we have oral sex? Is that the same thing? You know, all these different things, and they're trying to say, where do I cross the line? And I think it crosses the line in different places for different people. Oh, yeah, it, it's true. I mean, you've, but the consequences are not the same between a thought and actual doing. But it is true. And so, so often we're going, God, how close can I get to this before I've not done what you've asked? People will do it with tithing all the time. Well, I don't know that I can give a tithe, but you know, how much can I give to God and I can still give him what he's asked for, whatever he, whatever he tells you to give? You know, God is not a bean counter up there. He's not saying, well, you didn't give me... You, you missed a penny, so you didn't tithe. But no, you should have done it on pre-tax, not, not, not after-tax, you know, not on your net. You know, God, is not, God is not doing any of that. 
I truly believe that we should tithe and we should tithe what he gives us. And I believe that it should be on the, the pre-tax dollars. But, you know, if somebody's going to tax their, uh, tithe their net, I'm going to be happy for them tithing their net. If they're saying, I'm going to tithe after whatever's left and they're consistent with it, I think they're not doing it right, but I'm going to be happy that they're giving anything to God. And God will be happy as long as they're giving it for the right reason and the right motivation and the right heart. You know, because Paul said God loves a cheerful giver. And that literally means hilarious, excited giver. And so, you know, if you're giving 10% or 20% and you're giving it with every, oh God, you know, I'm writing this check to you, but you say you want it, so I'm going to give it to you, you're better off just keeping the check because you're not giving it with the right heart attitude and you're not giving it out of true contentment. If God says, you know, I want you to give me $20 a week and that's all you, all you think you can afford and you're consistent giving that money, then praise God, you're giving something to him. I've been doing what I've been doing for a long time. And I know that God has always blessed me, even when it's been tough. When we cut our budget, we kept the same percentage that we, that we give God, which is well above the tithe. And we kept, we kept the same percentage, even though it was a lot smaller check, we kept the same percentage. And God blessed it. That could have been one of those various, well, God, you said you only want 10%. I'm, I, can, I can cut the extra money and say, save that. But no, I felt that if I didn't give God what he and I had agreed to give him, then I wasn't going to be blessed the rest of the way. And so what is the way where to go? How far do you go? You listen to God. There's a whole school of thought that says that you should not have any physical contact before you get married because once you enter into physical contact, you change the, you change the relationship and make it emotionally based rather than commitment and, and, and spiritually based. And there's a big difference. Even if you do very little, it still changes because you're now looking for the experience of the contact. So there is a whole school of thought that says don't do anything until you're, until you're married. And there's many teens in, that are taking up that standard and the first time they've ever kissed each other is the day they say I do. Because of how strong they've taken that commitment to keep it totally pure and holy. Now am I saying that's the only way to do it? No, but I, told, I believed it and I taught my kids that. Now, I didn't follow it back when I was there because I had never heard that idea. If I had been taught that when I was a teenager, I would have followed it because that's how strong I believe it is God's, God's way. Oh, early. And that until you're taught something, and like I said, my heart resonated when I heard that. I'm going, if I had been taught that as a teenager, I would never have touched my wife before we were married in any way, shape, or form just because of how strong I would have believed that. When I learned it, it was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. And I taught it to my kids. Now, not, not always did they follow it, but they were taught. They had a and they had a choice to stand before them and God. But this is true for everything we do. We stand or fall before God. God, what do you want me to do and where have you brought me? My job is not to shame people into doing things the way I think they should be done. My job to share with you what I think the scriptures say and, you know, share my experiences, but not, and even then I'm careful about how I share my experience because I don't want people to get bound up doing the things that I do. I'm not going to tell anybody what percentage we give because I don't want to have somebody say, well, that's good enough for pastor. I got to do it the way pastor does. No, it's between you and God. We got to where, we, where, we're, where we're at over a long process between God and ourselves as we said, God, what do you want done? And recently, I, I had said, you can't all give God. And on the way home, God said, do you really believe that? 
And my answer to him, even though I was broke at the time, okay, God, how much more is this going to cost me? Because he was challenging me. I said something, do I believe it? And the truth was, I believe it. And we upped our <laughs> percentage again. The most important thing is that we stand or fall before God. We talk to God. God, what do you want me to have? We talked a lot about this after, after the message last night. How do we know what, whether we stay or go? We, we start just listening. And we go to prayer. And we humble ourselves and go, no matter what you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. And it can be out of contentment or even discontentment. Satan oftentimes will make us content because he doesn't want us doing what God wants. So he'll make you content because he's happy having you where you don't belong. So unless God puts a holy discontent in you, you might think you're doing fine and you're all happy. And uh, we see it oftentimes when people just sit in a pew. They're all happy and content. They're not having any troubles because all they're doing, yeah, they're going to church. Yes, they're hearing God's word, but Satan knows they're not doing anything. So he's not overly concerned. He'd like to not have them in church because they might just get on fire in a revival by hearing something that just sparks the spirit. But if they're not doing anything, okay, you're doing your duty, you're, you're thinking you're doing good. Start stepping out for God. Oh, and everything comes apart. <laughs> Start doing things for God and things happen to you because Satan will try to stop you. And God's going to say, are you trusting? Are you willing to follow? This is the one thing I've noticed is we've been pushing for this evangelism thing. It's been interesting to watch how Satan is, God has allowed Satan to attack people in this church as, as many are going forward to make things difficult for them. And the really sad thing, and it's really sad, is that many of them who are only coming once a week are totally oblivious to the fact that they're in the middle of a spiritual battle and being beat up because they get, they're sitting in the crossfire of the battle and not wearing their armor, not being in prayer, not being in God's word and being hit by all these spiritual attacks and not understanding why. And they're being hurt in their spirit because they're not being paying attention. Those who are following God and knowing what's going on, they kind of go, okay, God, I see what's happening. And I see when people are attacked, I'm going, okay, yeah. I've watched this person turn away. Kind of understandable. They're only here you know, once or twice a month at best. It's kind of understandable that they're been that they're that they've been bruised and and hurt and no longer coming oh god bring them back <laughs> but you know if we're not aware of what's going on around us you'll get hurt the soldier who forgets that they're in the middle of a battle usually dies because that's when they'll take their helmet off they'll take their body armor off because they're in the they're in the pit there's no no shots going on they'll light that cigarette in the middle of the night and get a bullet right between the eyes because they forgot for a moment that they were in a battle. We have so many Christians that forget that they're in a battle and take heavy spiritual injuries because they do foolish things and just forget. They forget to put on the armor. They forget to pick up the shield. They forget to get in God's word. They forget to pray. They forget to stay focused on God. And the next thing you know, they're laying in a ditch, you know, wondering, wondering where their joy went, where their, where their, where their Christian walk went and they backslidden because they forgot that they were in a battle. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we ask that you help us to remember who you are always and that you will look to see that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and, and that we will share that with others, that we will lift you up in all that we do and that we will take and build upon the foundation of that truth that you are the Christ and that your church is built upon you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.